O Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Shall I hear more, or shall I speak at this? Tis but thy name is thy enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo doffed thy name, and for that, that name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. Sound familiar? I have an English teacher back there, so that's, that's not very fair, I guess. Shakespeare, Shakespeare. Uh, Romeo and Juliet, of course, one of Shakespeare's triumphs, I guess, of plays. Well, most well-known, probably. I think there's better ones, in my opinion, but I'm not an English scholar. Um, but it is obviously one of the most well-known. It is one of the, the plays that most of us think about when we think of Shakespeare because of the wonderful tragedy uh, that that love tale kind of tells us. What's in a name? What's in a name? And, and that's kind of the question we have today. Uh, obviously, you know, Juliet wanted Romeo to forsake his family, throw it all to the side and, and give him all himself to her without being a Montague versus being a Capulet of what Juliet was. It, obviously, the names with regard to that situation meant something uh, because it kind of sided you with one side or the other in that controversy. What is God's name? And I think that's a question a lot of us may have. Uh, some of us have heard sermons. In fact, Brother Terry Edwards did a, ser- a sermon on this very topic about God's name uh, several months ago. If you want to get online on the website, I think you'll find it there and you can download it and listen to it. He probably does a much more eloquent job than I ever will with regard to the, the Hebrew and the Greek. You understand, and I want to emphasize as we go and muddle through Greek and Hebrew uh, during this lesson today, I am no Greek or Hebrew scholar, okay, at all. I took a couple of semesters of Greek. I had to for my Bible degree at Fried Hardeman. But let me tell you, two, two semesters of Greek does no way, form, or fashion constitute you as being a Greek scholar. So uh, it gives me just enough knowledge to probably get myself in a little trouble. So uh, as you, we go through this lesson, this is going to be somewhat of a word study. And when I say word study to you, uh, it really means looking at the words, where it's derived from, uh, the Hebrew and the Greek origin especially. We have one word that may be Aramaic, um, and it's an adoption into the Greek language, being Abba, which we'll get to that at the end of the lesson, hopefully, if we make it there. But, um, you know, as we look at the origin of these names, what I hope to do is answer this question here is, what is God's name? For us, And really, in, in truth, and just to be honest at the outset, I don't have a direct answer for you. Uh, I think that we can be pretty clear uh, that there's only one word. And we're going to start off with it, which would be Yahweh or Jehovah or Yehovah, uh, depending on how you want to pronounce that word, uh, would be the covenant name of God. And in fact, is only the, the only word in the Old Testament mentioned as being the name of God. That's the, the name being Jehovah. Uh, so, you know, we can probably make some arguments for some of these things. Of course, today we don't call him Jehovah on a regular basis. Uh, the, the English vernacular, the word would be God. And in fact, that word God is, is an accurate translation 
to what we know and what we understand God to be. Uh, because that's why you deal with words and translations. You have some people who are, who are so adamant that, no, we don't need to call him God. We need to call him Jehovah. Uh, and, and honestly, that gets into a semantics battle that's unnecessary when you, when you deal with the basic gist of, of what uh, we're dealing with here. Uh, God's name, first and foremost, is, is high above anything else. And it is something that is to be revered, respected, and loved. And we've got to understand that from the very outset here. Look at, though, if you look real quickly as you think about what's in a name, and, and, and of course, that was the question that Julietta asked, is, hey, what is in a name? Of course, a rose by any other name is just the same. The Hebrews would actually disagree with that because when you deal with naming things or names of something, uh, those names mean very much something. Uh, it's not just the name. It, doesn't, you know, it does matter what you call something in the Hebrew language because names uh, were much more important to them. Uh, I've put a little bit of a, an excerpt of an article that I've adapted on the, the far right of the inside of your handout there. If you'd like to read that and look over it, by all means, please do. Uh, dealing with the importance of the Hebrew, there's a couple of Hebrew words that are kind of thrown out there for you. But the right use of name denotes a right relationship with the thing that is named. And that's really what the Hebrew language would really uh, argue and, and put forth to you. And you look, really, we can see a good biblical example in Genesis chapter 2, verse 19. If you want to flip over there real quickly with me, most of us will remember Genesis chapter 2 is right after the formation of the world by God, the seven days of creation. And in chapter 2, of course, he gave uh, Adam here, blessing Adam, he formed man, of course, verse 7, formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. You flip on down there to verse 19, and what you're going to see there is the naming of things. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man, that would be Adam, to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And so what you see here is several different principles dealing with how important a name is. First of all, it describes and ascribes to them some type of a characteristic, possibly a, a, um, an acknowledgement of being named, a submission of sorts, because you obviously uh, if someone is naming you, they have the authority and the power and the ability to name you. So God there, of course, placing animal under man, being the one who has authority over all animals, brings them to Adam and Adam names them, every one of them. And so what you see here is the right use of a name denotes a right relationship with the thing that is named. There's a right relationship here of this animal being subservient to Adam, being subservient to man. Names often have symbolic or prophetic significance. I don't want to get into all the... These are only two examples here, Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 27. But of course, over in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, uh, the verse there says, Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Now, if you do a little bit of, uh, of word study here, the word Noah, of course, is prescribed here as being uh, prophetic uh, with regard to what he will do for the people. And you see that pretty often in the Old Testament. As the Hebrews named their children, or as the Hebrews had a name to a certain place, that name evoked importance because names meant something to them. I think we're a little flippant nowadays um, with regard to what we name something. And I'm not saying it's, it's a sinful thing, but we're just more flippant. It's more um, passe. It's, it's more, uh, you know, 
just kind of everyday vernacular. You know, my two children, for example, and I hate using myself as an example, but it's the best way not to get in trouble with somebody else. But my two children, for example, Marley and Tinley, as we tried to decide what we were going to name our children, we, we thought of several things. And honestly, we did, did kind of think about meaning of names because we did those searches on the Internet to try and figure out meanings of names and looked at different names and what they meant. You know, most people buy that book of thousands of names, you know, and kind of peruse through it. And that's what we did. We came up with Marley first and Tinley. Guess what? Neither one of them came from the book. Neither one of them came from any type of specific meaning. Neither one of them came from some family name whatsoever. We get that question sometimes. Is Tinley a family name or is Marley a family name? No, it's not at all. Matter of fact, Marley is a name my, my wife has always liked. She just liked the name. And uh, I, think, I think it means something of the ground or something. I, I'm not even sure we found a real definite meaning on Marley. And Tinley is the same way. I couldn't even find a meaning what Tinley means. Uh, to be quite honest with you, we got Tinley's name, that idea, off of watching a TV show. Now, I know that's crazy. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what TV show because y'all be laughing at me. So, That's the definite distinctive difference between our mindset in today's world versus the Hebrew mindset of the names. And you look at the Hebrew mindset of names, and names meant something. So a lot of times when you see someone being named in the Old Testament, there's a specific reference there as to what that name means or why they're naming that or what ultimately that, that they're trying to prove a point with that name. It's very interesting looking at the way God told some people to name some people. And some of those names were God's going to bring damnation on you. I mean, imagine having a kid named that. But you deal with the importance of a name as someone being symbolic, someone being prophetic with regard to the significance there. And God himself is strongly identified with his name. I want to flip over to Isaiah chapter 30, verse 27 real quick and see this. And again, trying to understand the mindset of the Hebrews as you're looking at the the names of God mentioned in their Bibles in the Hebrew language here. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 27, of course, is a a verse that deals with God's destruction being meted out upon those who were disobedient to him. And if you look down in verse 27, what you're going to see is behold, um, it says, behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place, burning in his anger and dense in his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation and his tongue is like a consuming fire. Now, interesting. It's not that the Lord came. It's just the very essence of his name coming. The very name of God bring about damnation and fear, indignation. The personification, that's a good word for the English people out there, the personification of God's name itself giving it characteristics there of being alive and breathing. It's very interesting when you look at it and think about the name of God. And God so closely ascribed himself and identified with his name that here in this prophecy, here in Isaiah, as Isaiah is talking to the people there, is confronting them and telling them what's going to be happening to them. It's not that the Lord came, but it's that his, his name would be coming. And then if you look over in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, you also see uh, Paul referring there in in Romans to Pharaoh. And the whole point and purpose and principles of the Exodus there and the fact that Pharaoh rose up there with the people in verse 17. And you'll see there, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God identifies closely with his name. Why? Because it is significant and it is showing 
It is symbolic, it is prophetic, and it's meaning. Now, that begs the question, what is God's name? Now, you look through the Bible, and there's different names that are mentioned there. The first one I want to look at, of course, I mentioned before is Yahweh. Yahweh is actually a four-letter word uh, as you look at it. And you see, by the way, most of these slides will have the the, uh, Hebrew or Greek on the far left, somewhat of a transliteration or pronunciation in the middle. And in the far right on the slide there, the title says usually what our our, um, translation of that would be, most Bibles. Uh, We'll get to the difference in this one as we go on. But Yahweh is actually four letters, W. I mean, Y-H-V-H, which is, as you can kind of see, the, the transliteration of Yahweh, uh, and the letters are plugged in there. I'll tell you why in a moment. Uh, but this four-letter Hebrew name occurs more than 6,800 times in the Old Testament. It is pretty much ascribed as being the most prominent name uh, ascribed to God uh, in, the, in the Bible and the text there. The meaning of this is really existent, eternal, or as I like to, to think about as the I am the I am, the existent, the eternal, uh, with regard to that word. Now, this is the same name as you see in the Bible ascribed to, to God whenever he makes the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and in Jacob. And this is the word that's used there for the name of God as he gives them those things. You can look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, that first uh, confrontation or really that discussion um, between God and Abraham. And you see in verse 8 there, uh, matter of fact, even earlier, you know, the, the, the chapter there, when it says Lord, that's going to be uh, this word Yahweh, uh, this um, Jehovah, Yehovah uh, in the Old Testament here. But look with me in verse 8 there. He proceeded from there to the mountain of the road of east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And so you see there a reference to the name of the Lord there. Same thing as you look in Genesis chapter 13, verse 4, Genesis 26, 25. Uh, and there's a bunch of other references. I think I threw some more on your handouts there for you to have with regard to this word Jehovah. Jehovah that is used in the Old Testament to indicate this covenant name of God. And so you see this being the first covenant name, not the first name. We'll get to the first name used in just a moment but the first covenant, the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. And you look also, I think the more descriptive analogy is Exodus chapter 3, 14. I know last week, I think it was from the pulpit that Doug mentioned our, our class on Exodus that Brother Tony Allen taught last quarter. It was an excellent class for the prime timers. But this is one of the things we got into in Exodus chapter 3. Flip there with me. This is very important when you deal with the name of God. And you look in verse 14, we know this story. Now, we've known this story since we were babes. As God there approaches uh, Moses there in the burning bush, and, and in the burning bush, he, he talks to them. Uh, of course, he approaches them. He, he, Moses questions him in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to, to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Uh, God, of course, answers him, Certainly I will be with you. Verse 13, Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and the God of your fathers has sent me to you. That they may, they may, now they may say to me, What is his name? That's our question, right? What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, by the way, this God is not Jehovah there, just to let you know if you look at the text. When God is using the Old Testament, it's usually either El or Elohim, or usually sometimes El is connected, and we'll talk about this in a second, hopefully, but with other words. But, but God says to Moses here, this is great, verse 14, look, 
I am who I am. That's his answer. Of course, those of us who are human (laughs) scratch our heads and think, what? What kind of a name is that? I am who I am. But when you dig deeper and you look in it, it says, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. For the more he said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name to all generations. I love it. There's the answer to our class right there. And I told you that if we got a clear answer, Jehovah would be the name. Yahweh, Yehovah, however you want to pronounce it in the Hebrew. It's very clear an indication there of who God is. And it's the name that God used to reveal himself to Moses. Yeah, Brother Henry. Yeah, good, good point. Yeah, there wasn't an equation there with God and with Christ. And I will tell you all, for purpose of this lesson, I'm not getting off on the tangent of Jesus and his names because that gives in a whole other diversion uh, with regard to this. It would take a whole quarter of study to talk about God and Jesus' name. As it is now, we're probably going to get their God's name today. But when you look at this, what you see is Jehovah, Yehovah, uh, the Hebrew name, is a very descriptive term, and it gives us an idea there of who God is and what he does for us. Usually in the, the Bible, just to let you know, uh, it's going to be... It's going to be translated as Lord. Some of your Bibles may have Jehovah, which is fine. More modern translations have kind of shifted away from Lord in all capitals to try and using the word Jehovah. Uh, So if you have an updated modern translation, it may say Jehovah there in the passage of Scripture. Most Bibles, though, New American Standard, King James Version, most of the the standard ones that we use still translate the word Jehovah as in L-O-R-D, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And so you have the capitalization there to distinguish that Lord from other Lords, which we'll get into uh, later on uh, with regard to the differentiation of God's name. So you see that translation there. But speaking, strictly speaking, as I said before, this is the only name referenced in Scripture. Every time you talk about the name of God, it's a reference to Jehovah in the Old Testament. So you'll see that. Uh, as you go through the study, if you were to do an independent word study there with regard to it. But the, the, the description of what Jehovah means, I am that I am, this covenant name of God indicates to us such a presence, such a, a, an aspect of being that it just obviously uh, begs all kinds of arguments that God is eternal. God has always been there. God will always be here. The the eternality of God is summed up in those two words, I am, because it's a presence of being. And so you see here that this covenant name of God is one of the the biggest descriptive uses of the name of God. And so, uh, and as I said, it's mentioned over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. There are really other ones that are used as well. And quickly, I want to go through those if I can. Adonai uh, is one verse, uh, one word that is used to describe uh, God as, as a, a, a name, so to speak, as God. Genesis chapter 15, verses 2 and 8. That sun is right on me, so you'll have to excuse me if I have to step away. Uh, Genesis 15, 2 and 8. O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house in Eleazar of Damascus? 
uh, verse uh, 8 goes on down and says, and he said, oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Of course, this is Abram talking uh, to uh, God. And this is a direct use of actually two words. Uh, the, the Jehovah is used there with regard to Lord and then the word, I mean, to God there. Um, the uh, Lord God, though, is, is also a combination of Adonai. So you have Adonai Yahweh, a Lord God, that is indicated there in the passages of scriptures uh, that you see. Um, actually, I take it back. I don't think Jehovah is using that verse. It's using verse 4, I think. Verse 2 and verse 8 is Adonai, and then verse 4 and some other verses there, as you see, uh, are capitalized, so they would actually be uh, Yahweh used there. So you have actually an Adonai Elohim probably uh, there in the uh, passage of Scripture there, Lord God, a combination there, usage uh, there. Lord, uh, Lord, the word Adonai is a, a word that means, it's actually a plural word. That's why I'm not being redundant up there by putting Lord twice, just to let you know. <laughs> Um, the, the translation with regard to this being a plural form of the word Adon uh, in the Hebrew, Adonai is plural, so it's really kind of a plurality of lords. Lord, Lord, or capital Lord, meaning a kind of a supreme Lord. You're kind of putting a double emphasis there on the, the, the name of Lord. In the Bible, the word Adon can refer to uh, men and angels as well as even the Lord God of Israel. And so you see um, God being called the Lord of Lords, and that obviously would be the Adonai of Adon and that kind of situation there. Uh, the emphasis being Adonai of being a plurality here, uh, the, the interesting fact when you look at it and the Hebrew language, even though it is a plural word, it gets singular verbs and modifiers. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? And I think that begs somewhat of an argument with regard to the, to the, uh, the uh, Trinity of God. And I don't want to get into the Trinity of God this week. That's going to be another lesson in itself. But when you look at this word being plural in form, I think it's kind of interesting for us to see God's called plural, but then you use these singular verbs or these singular um, modifiers for that plural word. In the Hebrew text, the vowels from Adonai, and this explains why we get where we get Yahweh from, or uh, Jehovah, Yahovah from in our language. In the Hebrew text, the vowels from Adonai are placed with the, uh, the four letters of the Hebrew. By the way, that's also called the tetragrammaton. Yahweh, that word, the tetragrammaton is, is, is the word used for this covenant name of God. So the, the vowels of Adonai are, are actually ascribed and put in, in the place of and really written underneath. So uh, the, in the Masoretic text, they actually wrote it underneath the Yahweh, the, the vowels. And the reason was is so that when they went across that word and they, they read it aloud, you have to understand the difference in the old, the way the Old Testament is and the reading of Scripture. Everybody didn't have a copy of the Bible on their nightstand or, or on their coffee table or in the bag. You know, they got up and they had to read the word in front of the people. And so they would get up and read the word of God. They only had very few copies of the words of, of the uh, of the. Pentateuch, the five, the, the first five books of the law, the, the, even the, the writings of poetry or even the, the writings of history. They didn't have multiple copies, so they get up and read them. And so this word, as you see Yahweh in the, in the passages, they didn't say Yahweh because they would ascribe the vows of Adonai underneath it so that when you're reading this orally and you came across that, you would not say the, the name of God. The covenant name of God was so sacred, they wanted to avoid it. They didn't ever want it to be used in vain. <laughs> Imagine that, uh, especially in today's world. Can't turn on TV without the name of God being used in vain. But 
They were so cautious and so careful. They did not want to misuse that covenant name of God. They ascribed the vows of Adonai underneath it so that whenever the reader came across it, instead of saying Yahweh or Yehovah or some covenant name pronunciation, they would say Lord, meaning Adonai. And so that's where you see the merging of those two names uh, with regard to the name of God because they were so cautious and so careful to be respectful and honoring the name of God that they would do that with regard to the text. Usually in your Bibles, as I said a moment ago, it will be translated as Lord with lowercase o-r-d. So when you look in your Bibles, most translations, as I said, tetragrammaton, the, the, the word for Yahweh, is going to be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Lord Adonai is going to be capital L-O-R-D, lowercase. So you'll see the difference and the distinction there in your Bibles with regard to that name of God. Quickly here, there's a couple others I want to touch on. Elohim is a plural of the the name El. El is kind of the more common form of the name God or the word God that is translated in the Old Testament. So when you see the name of the word God, it's going to be El or Eloah or Elohim, depending on the way it's actually structured there in the Hebrew sentence. But Elohim is a word that is used, and it is, again, it is a plural word. I love this. Because as we get into to talking about the combination of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, uh, which there is a combination according to scriptures, it's very interesting that this name of God, Elohim, is a, again a plural form used over 3,000 times. It is, by the way, the first name used for God. I told you I'd tell you which that one was in a moment ago. But you look at the plurality here, and I think it hints at the concept of the Trinity. You look and you think back to the, the names of crea- during creation. And, of course, most of us can quote Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, the name of God evoked, used there as the ultimate creator, the initiator, the beginning of all things, the alpha of all things there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. By the way, that word is Elohim, in the beginning, God. So within the first five words of the Hebrew text, the name Elohim is evoked as the name of God. It is a plurality here. And I love the way you read this. God did this. God did this. God said this. God did this. God said this. You read that account, Genesis chapter 1. You can't miss it. You have a word, and then you have the singular use of the verbs, or the singular uses of modifiers in the very first opening chapter of the Bible. But then you go down and look with me, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. I love it. It's very interesting as you look down there and you see, and God said, singular verb, right? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. I love it. A textual study expounds upon this. Why would that be? Why are all of a sudden we're using us in our here talking about creation? We're talking about a God, right? Well, yeah, we are. What's interesting, when you look at the Hebrew, you dig just a little deeper, and you see that the Elohim, the name of God used here in this text, is actually a plural, but yet it is given singular verbs. Love it, because it kind of gives you a, a, an idea and a concept, very broad, to try and first understand that there is plurality and singularity. <laughs> And our minds, is very hard to grasp. I'll tell you, I, I still don't have a firm grasp on the Godhead. I can talk about it. I can tell you 
uh, about what the Bible says about it. We can, we can discuss it, and we will discuss it in one of our lessons, hopefully this quarter, with regard to how, how can there be three in one? <laughs> that makes no sense. And it doesn't on physical levels. But on spiritual levels, it's beyond our physical understanding. And what we see here is the names of God evokes somewhat of an understanding that there can be multiples in a singular being. That there is somewhat of a plurality in one supreme being. Now, there'll be some that, that talk about this, and there's some that even argue and talk about the fact that it is also an idea of, of multiple characteristics or, or multiple traits in one supreme being, and that's fine. I'm not sure I have a lot of arguments with that uh, because there are multiple traits there. But um, I think it's very interesting to look at the word study. I don't have an explanation necessarily for you. Why did he use Elohim instead of El as being just a singular God? I, I don't know. Why did he not use Jehovah at this outset? I, I don't know that answer either. Uh, I would say because there's not a covenant yet. Jehovah is a covenant name. So until that covenant came across there with, with uh, God and Abraham, the covenant name is not used, I don't believe. I have to go back and look and see if it, if it appears before that covenant, but I don't believe it does with regard to uh, that name Jehovah, Jehovah being used in the original Hebrew text. Uh, Elohim also, just kind of a side note here, it is combined with other names. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through uh, chapter 3, verse 24. Uh, well, this answers my question here. <laughs> I was wrong. Um, there's actually Lord God, which would be Jehovah Elohim. So Jehovah is used before the covenant here in Genesis chapter 2. I do remember reading that there are some controversy as to whether this was added post or, or later. But anyways... Uh, I don't want to get into that um, critical debate because it's not necessary for our study. But if you look in the Hebrew language, you'll see a combination sometimes of Elohim with other names uh, to emphasize Lord God or to uh, emphasize uh, the presence of God. Uh, so you would see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 through 3, 24, uh, there, there's somewhat of a, the dialogue there of the falling away, you know, God, Lord God was uh, strolling and was looking for uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. All those conversations uh, indicate Lord God uh, as you go through there. All right, quickly, the last one in the Old Testament I want to touch on is El, which would be God. Uh, it's a singular form. It, would, it comes from a word meaning strength or mighty. Uh, obviously, you can kind of see why they would say God would, would fall under that or why the word would be derived from such a meaning uh, the strength and the mightiness of God. It's used over 240 times in the Old Testament to refer to both false gods as well as the one true God of Israel. And so you'll see there's some passages there if you want to go and look. And you know, The little G used, you know, that means uh, it's the same word that's sometimes used for the big G. Uh, you have to determine by context and by discussion, description, uh, surrounding that word, the actual meaning of that word, whether it means the one true God or does it mean... A, an idol god? Does it mean a, a false god that may be worshipped in the Old Testament? Um, usually it's attached with a qualifier or characteristics. I say usually because not all times is it. But there's, it's very interesting. In the Old Testament, the word El is connected a lot of times to other char- uh, characteristics or kind of descriptive terms for God. For example, and I just picked four. There's a listing, I think, of about nine in your handouts there. Uh, Genesis 14, Most High God. So obviously that's not an ordinary God. That's not a false God. It's talking about the one and true only God because the most high modifies the, the word God. Everlasting God, Genesis chapter 21 there, uh, obviously would denote uh, something 
other than an ordinary God. And it's talking about the one true God there. God Almighty, which is actually El Shaddai. If you ever heard uh, some of the Hebrews, some people throw that out as one of the names of God as being El Shaddai. That's what that means, actually. God Almighty, used in Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, also used over in Ezekiel 10, verse 5, uh, being described to us in the English language as being God Almighty. And so you have a modification, a modifier of the, the name El, being God, being El Shaddai, Shaddai being in the Hebrew meaning uh, mighty, almighty, powerful. Uh, And so you see that there in the Hebrew text. Living God in Hosea chapter 1 verse 10, I like that. Uh, Living and everlasting God, I think, are great qualifying, modifying, descriptive terms as to who God is. Because God is everlasting. He never ends. He's from beginning to end. He, He never ceases. He's always there. And then living God. Some people argue God's dead. God really doesn't care. He's so detached that, that living God, Hosea 1.10, talks about that God is a living, breathing, loving God who is there and is ever-present to us. There's other ones you can look in your handout there. I'm going to quickly try to get to some of the New Testament ones before we get on because uh, we're not having class next week. So uh, I want to try and shuffle through if I can. The rest of these, I may just leave it to you for your personal study. The, the overwhelming biggest name used for God in the New Testament would be the Greek word theos. Theos. And again, very similar to the word El, uh, it actually can be in the broadest sense any type of deity, whether it's the one true God or some other false God. And so the meaning of the word theos is a deity. And it's especially the supreme deity, God, that we know of as being God, when it's usually accompanied uh, by the article the, the God, kind of an exclusivity. Uh, I like that article when it's put on there because it very, makes it very obvious. We're talking about the God, not a God. Kind of reminds me of the, the argument with regard to the churches. You know, some people are changing their signs in the church building some, to be a church of Christ versus the church of Christ. And so the question is exclusivity, whether there's one or whether there's more, whether there's many different ones. And so what you see here is when the article the is attached to theos in the New Testament, it most always, and I can't say always because I don't want to, as I said, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I don't think I've done the terrible. But if you look, almost every time, it means the supreme God, the God, the one and only God uh, that we worship every Lord's Day. Um, And that's what it means by the word theos there. Theos is the most common name for God in the New Testament. As I said, it's used over 1,300 times. It can also be used for false gods. And it is also used in conjunction with other names of of God in the New Testament, specifically kurios, kurios, or kurios, uh, depending on how you pronounce it. Uh, It means Lord in the New Testament. And so a lot of times you'll see kurios, theos which will be Lord God in the New Testament in the, in the Greek language. So the name of God, of course, being evoked there is very similar to the Old Testament Lord Gods that we've already talked about before there being uh, Elohim, Adonai, or Yahweh, Elohim. Um, you know, those ideas of being Lord God, uh, the um, multiple emphasis upon that sacred name. Uh, it's also used, theos is used with descriptive terms to describe God. I put a couple here in your handout there for you to look at. Like God of peace, uh, God of all grace, true God in 1 John chapter 5. God the Father, June 1, Jude 1. Uh, God our Savior in Jude verse 25. Uh, God Almighty, again, very emphasis, it's very interesting to see the parallels. Old Testament, New Testament. 
uh, parallels of the names used for God. God Almighty, Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. You see the descriptive use of this word theos with other modifying descriptive terms to help explain and underscore who God is and why this name is being evoked for him. Another name used uh, in the New Testament is kurios. I'll be honest with you, this word is used more for the Lord Jesus Christ than it is for Lord God in the New Testament. If you look and did a kind of a, a parallel study with regard to, is it talking about God or is it talking about Jesus? This word more often is used for Jesus. However, it, it is also used for God. The word means, it comes from a Greek word kuros, uh, meaning supremacy. Uh, usually meaning a master or a lord type of supremacy uh, ruling with regard to it. It's used as a title for God. You see Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, Matthew chapter 4, verse 7 and 10. And it's also, as I said, used for Christ as well and more frequently used for Christ. Uh, again, and I know Brother Jim ta- brought up the fact of, of, of Christ claiming deity, Christ claiming equality with God. Uh, is even supported by his use or the use of the same word used to talk about God and talking about Christ. I think it's very interesting. These word studies can bring out some of those parallels that other things cannot because you're digging deeper below the surface of our English translations. Uh, the Jews, very interestingly, historically refused to call the emperor Lord, uh, Curios, because they reserved this name for God, is what Josephus said in his book, The Jewish War. So historically even, Josephus was not a Christian. Uh, but you see, as he wrote about the Christians there, they would not call the emperor Lord, this same word, because they reserved that for God. Uh, quickly, a couple other ones, uh, and this is probably more important than Abba, but uh, pater is the word in the Greek used for father, for father. And you see God called father many times. Uh, sometimes he's called theos pater, which would mean God our father. Uh, sometimes it just talks about being our father. And then in context, you have to decide, is this talking about God, our father? Or is this talking about our paternal father, or our earthly, our physical father that we have here? The meaning of pater is literally and figuratively meaning father. It's also, as I said, used for earthly fathers. There are some references to God combining this word, as I said, with theos. And there's some scriptures there. It's in your handout as well. And I think more specifically, it's used in prayers. By, to God by Christ and other disciples to, to talk about the placement, the exaltation of who God is as being our Father. And what ultimately I think it does is it gives us an identification and proper perspective with regard to our relationship with God. You can look real quickly at the, the last one, and I'm going to leave you with this uh, for our class. But Abba, Father, is only mentioned three times in the New Testament, actually. Mentioned once by Christ in Mark 15, twice by Paul in Romans and in Galatians. And all of these really show this intimate relationship. It's more than just this paternal relationship of being a father. But it's actually this filial affection, this respect, this parental tenderness, if you want to say, that a parent has toward a child or a child recognizes that a father has toward them. And so when you see Abba, Father, it's an emphasis upon that relationship. And I don't think in any ways it means we can call... God, Daddy. I think that kind of defaces what, who God is because it's a very, um, I think it's too low. God should be exalted. God should be respected. But that idea of Daddy, of, of when my little girls call me Daddy and say, Daddy, I love you, is that idea we see with Abba. Is that, that relationship, that recognition, that love, that devotion, that tenderness that is sparked there by this word Abba 
in the New Testament. Quickly, if y'all want to look on the back of yours, um, I put some lessons I think you can get from these names. Look at those and, and study them. Maybe you can add some to yourself there, and we'll be able to uh, move on from here two weeks from now. I won't go over those for you today, but there are some great lessons I think we can get from God's names uh, and seeing some of these things that, that we can kind of use uh, to further understand what is God's name. There may not be a concrete final name of God. There's multiple names. <laughs> and what we see from the names of God is there's something that we can really take to our Christian lives and, and understand deeper that relationship that we should have with our God in heaven. I hope you all got a lot from this lesson. I've enjoyed your kind attention.